0: In the wee small hours of the morning, while the whole wide world is fast asleep, you lie Lesson You'd be hers if only she would call in the wee small hours of the morning. That's a town. On today's episode, we talk about being a master of one versus a jack of all trades in Tavern Talk segment. We then discuss Frank Sinatra's in the We Small Hours for our main discussion, and Peter chooses the next topic we'll cover, Herbie Hancock's Headhunters. Hello and welcome to the Culture Quest. We are but humble adventurers, and today we're out on a midnight stroll around the city, just thinking about life about you. With me, as always, are Peter. Hello. And Bario. Hello. (laughs) And I am Inan. Thank you, the listeners at home, for taking part in our noble quest. Today, we're discussing Frank Sinatra's 1955 album, In the Wee Small Hours. Before that, though, let's do some tavern talk. (laughs) So, today, we're dealing with the question... Are you more of a jack of all trades or a master of one kind of guy? That is, are you more interested in being pretty good or knowledgeable about a few different things, or being really good at one specific thing?
1: Um, also, I think before, like as before, we all reveal our credences, right? I reckon we should just have a guess of everyone else, because we. I guess you might know Barrio pretty well, but I don't think I know you guys at all in this regard. Can I just have a guess of you guys? Yeah, yeah. please. I, I reckon I reckon Barrier is more of a master of one or master of few.
0: Master a few, that's um, nice. I like it.
1: <laughs> and um, Non is probably more of a jack of all trades. Hmm.
0: We shouldn't talk about it as if it's two absolute sides. Mm. Uh, it, it, I, I see it more of a scale. So when you say yeah. like a master of few, I see it as like, you know, closer to the master of one end of the scale. Yeah.
1: Because there are masters of one, like... um, Like Jiro. Hmm. Yeah, like Jiro, but I was yeah. going to say like, you know, like a fighter pilot or something like that.
0: So I'm, I'm guessing Peter is a bit more towards... You know what? I think Peter is straight down the middle. <laughs> I know, you know, we talk about the books you read often, Peter, hmm. and you read about all kinds of subjects, but you tend to take a fairly deep dive into each subject.
2: All
1: right. So I definitely skew much more to Jack of all trades than master of one or master of few. So that's just empirically what I do. But I think the best way, like if I had to come down, like, you know, on a podcast, it's not fun to hedge, like no one likes hedging. So I'm not going to say like in the middle or, you know, a little bit of both, something like that. I I actually do think it's probably better to be jack of all trades in some sense. Really? Yeah. I, I think in a society, if we, if we're taking like the society view, it might be better that some people are just really good at one thing. Otherwise... We might not have had like specific scientific discoveries and like if Albert Einstein was really good at carpentry as well, we might, <laughs> we might still not be airing the podcast yet. So there's, a, there's an argument to be made that on a societal level, you might want some masters, but I, I still think everyone should go for jack of all trades. Like, even if you're very good at one thing, you kind of want to be a jack of all trades. I think maybe the few exceptions are like sporting ability. Maybe, maybe you would want to specialize, but um, the reason I think you want to go Jack of all trades is um, I think in general, like a lot of the principles from specific fields. So if you go into like engineering or law or any, any of the big tenant kind of um, fields, the ones that have been around for a long time, I think you find a lot of the principles are very transferable, like more transferable than you think. Which is an argument of, oh, why don't you specialize and you can transfer. But I actually think if you learn enough subjects, if you kind of think of them as dots, right? You know, each dot is sort of like spread out randomly and they're, or not randomly, but they're they're next to other dots. So psychology and philosophy are pretty close to each other and, you know, they'd be close to ethics and stuff. History is probably a fair distance away, but it's, it could be connected, you know, it's And then being
0: good at tennis is even further away.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being, being, like, you could connect them, but it would be a long sort of thing. Like, I guess, like, knowing, like, the history of biology or something like that, like ATP and stuff like that could get you into tennis. And so uh, there's, like, chains where, like, some bits are more applicable to other things. So if you're good at videography, you might eventually be good at sort of... um, audio and stuff like that. And I th- and I think, like, I don't know, if you factor in the human lifespan, it might not be totally the best idea, but I think if you get good at, like, uh, superficially into, like, maybe just more than superficial knowledge of enough subjects, you can kind of triangulate on new subjects. Like, you can, if you get really good at sort of specific types of, like, history and, geography, then you can kind of like estimate the politics or something like that. You know, you can kind of, yeah, you can kind of do the cross-referencing and figure out things that you would, that you would otherwise just have to like research and learn off by heart. So yeah, I, I, I find this in like accounting is a big one, like economics and stuff like that is a big one where if you kind of understand the economics of a situation, you kind of get like a cheat sheet into the other like things, as soon as you get like the motivations and the incentives of like all the actors, you can kind of, you can kind of cheat your way through the history a little bit. Mm. So obviously I'm pretty young. So like if I'm a quarter of the way from my life, I think I'm still kind of getting a little bit of those benefits of reading kind of what wi- widely, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I, and on, I, I know you said I go pretty deep, but I'm pretty good at sounding like I go pretty deep <laughs> when I don't. So but yeah, I, I, I think, um, I think you do get the accrued benefits of kind of leeching off as many fields as you want. Cause, cause in general reality doesn't like, um, there's no real splits in fields besides like the resources of universities. Like if, you, if universities had unlimited resources, which is actually hard to imagine, but the split of what's the difference between history and philosophy and stuff actually would become more murky, I think like be able to learn like of a specific event in time and the philosophy and the ethics behind it and where we were as a species at this time. I think people sort of get these different lenses on life. Like a historian will look at it for a his- historian's kind of lens and a philosopher will look at it philosophically and stuff like that. And I think I think a lot of that's driven just by like what we call the subjects in school. If you kind of ignore them as much as you can and kind of try to subvert them then I think you realize that reality kind of triangulates itself. Like you can kind of, um, yeah, you can kind of like leech off one subject to get to another subject and it, it feels a little bit like cheating, but <laughs> I'm not sure if a ma- if you're a master of one, I, th- I think it's probably better just to be a jack of all trades. And then if you really want to master, you can master. So like the, this, the default mode should be jack of all trades, but I'm willing hmm. to be convinced Otherwise kind of together.
0: exploring all kinds of fields and being a jack of all trades, and then if you see something that, like you, you feel like you fit in perfectly, then you can master it.
1: Yeah, I think it's harder to make an argument to go from master to jack of all trades. Like it would, it would seem ob- like more idealistic, at least, to go from jack of all trades to to a master. Like it would seem like you almost have more wisdom at that point. I'm pretty much just referencing like a concept. Uh, basically the unity of knowledge, which you could Google, which is basically just saying like uh, the truths in one field pretty much will um, percolate down to other
2: fields
0: as well. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thought.
2: Well, I guess there are a lot of kind of like softer skills that hide behind the process of mastering a certain skill. So in a way, mastering something, it will probably become easier to master something else. So yeah, I, I tend to agree. I, I well, when I was younger, I was more around, uh, you know, the 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 jack of all trades approach, mm. and I think in a way I'm I still am. But well, I guess the more you grow old, you you understand that there are a lot of people, and in order to in order to stand out, you you really need to make yourself good at, in something. I think, and maybe it's a maybe it's wrong, but eventually people. They put you in one drawer, like they mm. say. Peter, he's really good at accounting. Inon, he's really funny. Mm. Barrio, he's a dumbass. <laughs> so, in a way, you want to you want to stand out in in a certain field, so you'll be you'll be assigned to a good drawer. Because in a way, that that's kind of like wh- what helps pushing you in
0: life. Yeah, you can be a master, like a, a jack of all trades, and be really good at a bunch of different things, and you know, be able to make connections between those different fields. But people see you as a one dimensional person anyway,
2: yeah, and you know it 's very superficial and and you you kind of you want to have something that stands out and and give you an advantage uh, like obviously I think personally it's it's probably much more fun to have to be a jack of all trades because you can experience things in in a much deeper way just
1: on that point, like the thing about being a master of one as well is that if you get deep enough into a subject to the point that the amount of people who are expert in that field, it's like the numbers are dropping, um, to the point where you can sort of get them in a room, you know what I mean? Like when there's only 50 people yeah. that know exactly what you know, like I'm thinking in the early days of Bitcoin or something like that, this could be a situation when not everyone was aware of it and stuff. And the people who really understood it, there was forums where they would all be on the same forum, I imagine. Like, um, you know, if you're doing some like really sort of niche maths or something like that it'd be pretty lonely because like no one else is really following the plot in some sense. Like um, there's only probably a couple people around you, like in your department that you could chat with. And, you know, if they move or if if they move on to other topics or something like that, like, you know, it's kind of just you, you know, you have to kind of like forge your own way. Whereas if you're jack of all trades, everyone will be better at you at what you do. So like if you want to like read on, you know bioethics or something you can just like pick up a book and someone will have done 10 years of research and compiled it into a book and you can just buy it for four ninety nine and just absorb that knowledge you, you know you it's kind of like in a board game where like someone else has to like do like this defeat the demon and you just kind of go past after like everyone else is sort of doing the the hard work, and you, <laughs> and you kind of just leech off it. It's a lot of leeching, I think. In in
0: um, yeah, in being a so. jack of all trades.
1: <laughs> but I, I don't know about you, Barrio, But in the tech space, as soon as I think about tech, I always think people have to be masters because it's like
0: such a competitive field.
1: I think I think jack of all trades lends itself well to like communication based uh, mediums. You know, more um, connecting with people and sort of communicating ideas and stuff. Whereas master of one, like if you were sort of typing code or something like that or fixing things on online, like maybe a master is kind of the only route into that. I'm not sure.
2: Yeah. So if we'll take two people, one master of one and one jack of all trades, who's better in getting stuff done? I think there's kind of like a, an added advantage when you know to connect multiple dots because a lot of time mm-hmm. tasks are made of different aspects. So the fact that you know how to speak in different languages, technologies, uh ideas mm-hmm. and and see kind of like things more horizontally. Yeah. That might help you get, get stuff done.
1: Yeah. You might not be the one to put it into the end zone, you know, like writing out the code, but you could be the one chatting and like liaising to people about who use different programs and stuff like Yeah. It's definitely possible. Yeah. You need you need both.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about you Anand? I thought about this question you know in the past few days and I think I think that mostly I came down thinking that being a master of one would be beneficial both to you and to like society as a whole mm. but honestly I just think that being a jack of all trades is just it, it just seems so much more fun and interesting you know it's, it's more fun yeah <laughs> yeah the
1: the reality is right if someone's like, do you want to go golfing this weekend and you've done a bit of every sport and you can kind of like adapt a little bit, they're, they're going to be the one out golfing. You know what I mean? Like if you're the, if you're the master of darts, Hmm. you know, like that's great. But like, there's only like a few people who want to play darts and there's always going to be people who want to play golf or ice skating and stuff like that. So I think there's, eminently more enjoyable the only thing i i would say is a counterpoint is that you will never learn an instrument fully like you'll always be the person that can noodle away on guitar but you'll never be like in in the best band or anything
0: like it's, that it's different by when you think about different like positions and different things you can do and i think that mostly you'd be you'd benefit more by being a master of one like if you're playing an instrument you You'd rather be good at one instrument than being very mediocre in a bunch of, of different uh, instruments. So I think that, like, you know, if you take it to a different direction, if you look at society as a whole, I think, like, maybe I'd, I'd say we should have like 70% of the people as masters of one and 30% as jacks of all trades. Mm.
1: That seems right. 70 30 seems right to me. I think there is a deeper thing to this, but like, here's a theory is it better to be a jack of all trades when it's not for money and when i say not for money i actually mean like even in your job like there are things you do not for money like so like <laughs> do like, but okay <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but like okay so but your job like in my job right my job might be accounting well it is but i don't know why i said right <laughs> anyway so my job is accounting right but there's things like extra things like, you know, running training sessions and like trying to get people together and um, like organizing social things or um, being the person that people come to or something like that, right? And that could be seen as like a jack of all trades, right? Because you're kind of trying to interact with lots of people, you're trying to, you know, be broad in your, you know, your interests, right? But the stuff that you like build clients for is very like, master of one. Right. So I don't know why I needed to make that distinction, but I'm trying to say that like the stuff that is going to make your career, like it, for most people it could be master of one. Right. But in your social life, you want to be jack of all trades. So you want to be the person that can play a few chords and guitar and you you know how to play like the soccer game on and you know, Mario Kart and like you know, you know how to like cook a steak and you know, you can swim at, like in the beach and then you can drive a manual car or, uh, you know, all this stuff, which is like, you kind of, you've got a, you know, a foot in everything that might be better socially. And in terms of like making money, it might be better for master of one. The only kind of caveat I'm putting in there is like, for, you might be making money as a master of one, but to actually go and not change job, but to kind of scale the hierarchy a little bit, you might need to be more of a jack of all trades to like scale up. So in terms of like Barack Obama, right, he was a master of wine in terms of being a lawyer, but to be the president of the United States, he was obviously not just a very good lawyer. Yeah. He was, you know, he was a great communicator and he had a lot of empathy and, um, You know, he could rally people behind him. So he arguably went from master of one to more of a jack of all trades. But I think you could say to kind of progress, like to go from a master of one to a master of few, you kind of almost need to like have your foot in jack of all trades a little bit. So you kind of go into master and then you got to, you got to step back out and then you got to go back in again. So if you're like a quantum physicist, but you want to go into like, you know, writing popular... Science books, you kind of need to go out and back in again. I don't know. What I'm trying to say is maybe there is a separation between work and and social. Yeah, I I, I don't know. For for work is a jack of all trades very good, and also for social is master of one good. It, it they both seem not good.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I think uh, for social, you'd rather be a jack-of-all-trades and you can fit in, in more places, in more social groups, you know? And mm. at work, it, it really matters, it really falls down to what, what, what's your job, you know, if you're more of a yeah. men- managerial position or a practical position. I don't know. I think we all kind of lean towards the jack-of-all-trades, mostly because it mm. just seems more fun, but it does say I often. mean look at the, yeah. look at our podcast if we if we'd be more interested in being masters of one we'd focus on like movies or just music and then yeah you know maybe after like 64 or 65 episodes we'd be and we'd we'd have like a real deep knowledge of movies, but we're shooting mm. in all directions, and I think we're all happy with that. <laughs> yeah,
2: and, that, and instead we yeah. have like shallow knowledge of movies and PC games and books and yeah and albums. Mm. Wonderful.
0: <laughs> yeah, we as we go, we see more and more connections between those things. You know, today we're uh, discussing in the We small hours by Frank Sinatra, and we got to it from Slipless in Seattle, which featured that song. It's a uh, Uh, That's a connection, you know? In the We Small Hours is a 1955 album by Frank Sinatra. It's ranked at 282 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums list.
1: Not only that, but it was higher. It was number 100 in the first edition. Mm -hmm. I think it dropped maybe one or two places in the 2012 update. And then... It had a whopping drop to 282 so it didn't didn't age well from what 2012 not too well yeah uh 2020.
0: Sinatra's recording career started around 1946 when he released his first album uh, known as the voice of Frank Sinatra but uh, from what i've read it took a while before Sinatra's name became huge you know at first his albums weren't too popular and he was hosting a tv show called the the Frank Sinatra show which also wasn't doing that well. And, you know, despite that, he kept recording albums throughout the 40s and 50s. He played in a few movies. Uh, I think he even won an Oscar for uh, roles that he played. And, you know, he was considered to be a very talented actor. And all in all, when work began on In the Wee Small Hours, uh, which I think they recorded throughout two months, I think it was February and March of 1955, at that point, Sinatra's life wore at a low point. It was uh, a few years after he and his first wife divorced uh, and his relationship with his second wife was just falling apart. And Frank and Nelson Riddle, uh, who arranged all the music on the album, they sat down to choose all the songs to record for, th- for this album. And most of the songs on the album were picked out from The Great American Songbook, which is a collection of early 20th century American jazz standards. And Riddle, who, again, the the arranger of the album, said that the end of Frank Sinatra's marriage to Ava Gardner, who was his second wife, is what made Sinatra choose the type of songs that are on this album and gave him the ability to sing more emotionally. And if you've listened to the album, you've probably noticed the the theme on the album. uh, The songs are almost all of them about failed love, about loneliness, about heartache, about remembering the past. In in fact, some people even credit this album as the first ever concept album, as all of the songs were chosen to work together and create that theme. And Sinatra was known for wanting to make a concept album uh, with, with a consistent theme throughout, since he recorded his first album. And the album is just under 49 minutes. It consists of 16 tracks. In terms of style, it's a jazzy album, which means that the music is based on a jazz orchestra mostly. Um, kind of feels like your grandpa's jazz. And I mentioned the, the the themes of the album earlier, and I have to mention that the album presents those feelings in a bittersweet kind of way. There are some optimistic points in the album as well. It's not just gloom and doom. And I think the album cover does a lot to capture the feel of the album. It's It's a picture of... Frank Sinatra alone at night in the middle of this empty street and everything is 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 blue. It's really perfect for the music. Um, anyway, I know it's not the musical style that we listen to too often, maybe Barrio more than both Peter and I, but I, I, I want to say it's an easy album to just pick up. So, you know, let's talk about what we thought of the album in general. What, what was your experience with this album?
1: Um, so my general thoughts, the first listen to it was, for me pretty rough. I'm going to say like I, knowing it was jazz, like I knew it was going to be pretty somber, but, um, jazz, I guess I kind of just used the term, but I didn't actually know what it was. And, um, so I listened to it once, not really knowing anything. Like I, I kind of assumed he'd written them and like, I, I assumed all the music was kind of not following a standard tune, but you know, I, I had a pretty open mind, but I didn't really like it. It felt very cliche. But I know I've done this podcast for long enough now that I know <laughs> what sounds cliche is is generally actually true originality just hidden in sort of like what what's become like quite repeated themes over like the years. Yeah. So, um, and, and in general, kind of used not ironically, but just more of like a um, a parody. Um, sometimes in more modern films and and stuff like that to parrot what was what was done in the past. Yeah, so the first the first listen wasn't wasn't great, and then the times I listened to it after that, and I discovered the American standards and all this stuff. It aged a little bit better for me. I, I realised like he was pioneering this way of singing, which is like more emotional, not quite authoritative, but um, I guess more more personal, like, um, more subjective in a way. Mm. Like you're not trying to like say what other, other people are seeing. You're kind of just, um, you, you kind of can't be wrong about what you feel in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I aged a little bit better, but on, on the whole, like, I, I don't know. I kind of didn't find what I wanted to find. Like I, I was hoping there would be more something I missed from this era, but I kind of come out like with almost more respect for people in the late 50s and the early 60s. Like I kind of understand why people were going nuts at Beatlemania and why Elvis was so popular and stuff. Because honestly, I just can't imagine teenagers or I guess it's not made for teenagers, but even people in my age now, like 24, really getting into this. Like it felt, it felt soothing at times and it felt kind of um, relatable. But I don't know, I couldn't imagine anyone really getting Get it going really deep into this album, but um, something I did enjoy was the concept album. Like, and this is like um, a lot of albums do have a theme. Like, you know, Joni Mitchell's often we talk about um, Joni Mitchell's Blue, which is like quite you know it, it's almost the same kind of theme, like a lost love. And um, this one is like really narrows down on the theme. Like, all if you just look at the song titles, yeah, <laughs> um, they're very similar. the The moodiness of the instrumentals is is really quite similar in, in terms of even some do sound like almost like it could be a score for a movie they do sound um kind of reminiscent of each other but um but yeah so i i i didn't have a terrible time with it but i did feel like i i didn't really either understand it or i just kind of learned to just appreciate the the change in music after this cuz this was mid 50s so i'm thinking 59 early 60s would have seen probably quite a drastic change
0: you you brought up the Beatles and Elvis and I'm thinking that like Mm. you know this music here on on Frank Sinatra's in the we small hours is such a different type of exciting Mm. you know like it it is exciting in a way but it's it's not as catchy it's not as you know arousing as the Beatles and Elvis Mm. music but do you find did the music make you like feel anything at all, or was it kind of an empty experience for you?
1: It was pretty much an empty experience. Really? There was some like yeah, there was some tunes where I quite um, got into it, but like w- one of them that stands out was um, "Glad to Be Sad," I think it's called.
0: "Glad to Be Unhappy."
1: "Glad to Be Unhappy." Sorry, um, that one. That one I actually quite liked. That one's the one I found myself playing the most, but. That, yeah, that was the closest I got to like an emotional reaction to it. Uh, because sometimes when I do feel sad, like there is some sort of comfort in it, you know, like when you're at hit hit rock bottom and you kind of, at least you can sit down, you know what I mean? You can kind of, um, you know, recognize where you are and really there's only one way up. But, um, to be honest, a lot of the songs I, I couldn't get into too much. Like there's, I'm not sure exactly where the disconnect was, I think this might be, I'd like to get everyone else's thoughts on it, but, um, the, my going down the rabbit hole of like the American standards and, um, you know, finding out all this stuff about, um, Nelson Riddle. Um, yeah, finding out all of this stuff, like it did detract from Sinatra's kind of like presence on the album because in, in some sense, like what I do like about albums is seeing like the arrangement, not even like the deliberate arrangement, but just like how things naturally occur, like how the band is playing and um like, you know, is there drums in this one and stuff like that, which you still do get, but there's something missing where it's like the artist is kind of taking a backing track almost, you know, it's like, I don't know, there's no authoritative, like, oh, we should do an extra verse of this or something like that. There's, it feels like almost like a karaoke-style thing where he's just trying to sing it the best he can, which is great, but um, kind of loses something a little bit for me. Hmm.
0: I think I'd say that out of the three of us, you listen to jazz the least. Um,
1: definitely, definitely.
0: So I, I don't know, maybe, maybe it even makes it less approachable, this whole album, because I I, I said it earlier... This is really, even I, I listen to jazz a fair amount and I don't think this is an approachable, easy album to get into. You know, it, it, it's oh, okay. nothing you pick up and just enjoy. You know, as I mentioned on our last episode, when we introduced this topic, this is an album I tried to get into for a few years now. Like I would listen to to it every once in a while. I think it sounds interesting because like I said, I, I do like jazz and I do listen to stuff that, that is kind of maybe developed out of this. This album never really stuck for me, so I literally chose this to give it a fair chance and to kind of commit to listening to it, you know? I kind of knew what to expect, and I had a feeling I would like it. And in the last two weeks, I listened to this album basically every day. Like I would say it's not the catchiest album. I'm sorry, let me correct this. This is not a catchy album. <laughs> I think I think it is a bit hard to get into, uh, especially if you're not too familiar with the style, But all in all, I did have a really good time with this album. I tried to listen to it in a few different situations, like in the background when I was working or when I was walking with the dog or when I was going to sleep. And also, I tried to listen to the songs in their original order, and sometimes I shuffled them. And I think that the most positive thing I can say about my experience with this album is that almost every time I listened to it, it stirred all kinds of feelings in me. You know, comparing this to other things... You know, this album came out, what, like 70 years ago? A bit over 70 years ago. And, Mm, you know, I've listened to a bunch of jazz that came after this. And honestly, this, like you said, this feels a bit cliche. This feels a bit primitive in comparison to other stuff I've listened to, you know? So I'm not going to say that each song is amazing and mind-blowing and everything. There are a few songs that are a bit flat, I'd say but still every time I listen to this album I felt stuff moving inside of me you know and even if I didn't love each and every song or even if I wasn't paying close attention to it I felt like it made me feel things and it puts it puts me in that blue mood even if it's just in the background and music that make you feel things like that is I think the best kind of music you know uh, on a more shallow level uh, I I listened to the the album quite a few times and there are still maybe like six songs that I can't hum their tune and won't recognize yeah, by the I'd name. Yeah, I got that as well. Yeah. yeah. You know, songs that weren't too memorable That's usually
1: for me. not a good sign for me. That's the first thing I notice.
0: Yeah, usually when that happens, when there are songs that I don't get after so many listens, it usually means that they're a bit boring. But with some of this album, I'm, I'm still waiting for the click to happen, you know? I'm still giving them a chance. Like, mm. I'm still... I, I, I'm i not finished with this album. I I... I'm not sure if there's any deeper I can go with it. Maybe those songs are boring, but I'm willing to give them a a try because I'm still not over this album. Uh, Still, I listened to this album earlier today and it it still, it makes me feel things. It makes me, it puts me in a mood, you know? Uh, On the face of things, I didn't love each and every song on the album, but every time I listened to it, I got right in the mood. So while on a personal level, the connection is a bit weak, it's not a personal favorite of mine, but I've had a lot of fun with this album, mm. and also the timing was really amazing because there were a few stormy days in the in the last couple of weeks, and and this album just worked so well with like the rainy gray days, you know, we've had. Uh, so that, that was uh, something I really liked. Barry, what what about
2: you? Uh, the, the disclaimer here probably is that that I've I've been listening to Frank Sinatra for for years. I just told on yesterday that some of the songs like I, I didn't even know that I know by heart because I was listening to them while studying for tests in school. But mm. Frank Sinatra always always appealed to me. He has something hypnotizing with his voice. So I really have a very warm corner in in my heart for him. So obviously I I love the album. I totally agree with you Peter. It's there is something a bit cliche but the only reason for that to be cliche is because all the other cliches are based
1: yeah. off it. Yeah, I figured that'd be the case.
2: Yeah. Once you realize that, and you realize it's, it's actually authentic. And that gives it some, some mm. charm. I will also add that I think Frank Sinatra's voice is amazing. It's, it's hypnotizing. It's charming. It's uh, emotional. It's not as emotional as it can be. But I think that's maybe some of the spirit of the time. But like I, I can understand why it didn't completely talk to you. My only defense is that I think that Frank Sinatra's greatness actually. Two of you would much more enjoy an album that that's not only the concept of uh, lost love and loneliness, hmm. because. Frank Sinatra is a cocky, arrogant person and the songs where he sings that he's kind of like the best and he's the greatest lover and, and he offers uh, <laughs> women to go fly with him, it's, these, these are the songs where he shines. Like, you, you can really see how this incredibly charismatic person can, can really take you over. So an album that has a bit more highs than only lows does real justice to his to his talent.
0: That's a very good point. Peter, have you tried listening to any other of his albums? No, I haven't.
1: I will definitely give it a go, um, especially because I, I read a little bit into sort of what he was going through when he wrote this album, which actually made me more interested in this album, i got to say. And, like, I know we said that he doesn't get too emotional because of the time, but in some ways, like, it is just as emotional as, like some like, some of the emotional, like, stuff we have nowadays. Like... Some of the emotional stuff nowadays is kind of like a faux emotion. It's like people will say, you know, like I'm crying daggers without you and, you know, all this stuff, but it, you almost don't believe it in some sense. Like there's, there's some sincerity in this album, which you don't often get with the modern stuff, even if it's there, but. I'm thinking of something like um Guy Sebastian's Battle Scars or something like that. Which like if you read the lyrics and you listen to it, it's very quite emotional, you know. Like well, I mean it's in the it's in the song title. But in some sense, because he's singing it like a pop song, there's nothing that says this couldn't have come about as, oh wow, I've got this da, 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 you know, like what what do you put to that? And he's like, putting in random syllables and he's building it up and battle scars works, you know, like it's not necessarily like an emotional song from the ground up. It's just, it's like a song with tinged with this sort of emotional theme. Whereas this album is like, you couldn't have this orchestra set up and his, his voice and stuff. You couldn't have this being a, anything else, but like a real sorrowful album, you know, it's really converging on a loss in some sense you know like a love that got away or love lost yeah i I think i'll definitely give a one of his earlier albums a go but something i'll say is because i don't want to be too negative about this album because in some sense like i'm sure it's to do something like this would give other people ideas and then you get different albums sort of in the future which i would also like to discover some albums that this inspired yeah because like the one, uh, I don't, I don't know if this is a fair comparison, but in the terms of the singing, I get this a lot, but I get Michael Bublé a lot. Like the way he sings reminds me a lot of these sort of jazz standards and, and Sinatra. And I, I would find it hard to believe that he doesn't take a lot of influence from Sinatra. The, the thing is right, which is very harsh to this album is that I, I said the Beatles is, you know, one of my favorite bands, which they are. But if you go back a few years where you had Chuck Berry or Little Richard, um, which are very big inspirations for the Beatles. I actually didn't really like Chuck Berry or Little Richard that much. Like I
0: probably
1: preferred them a little bit to, um, Sinatra to be honest, or at least this album, but I didn't really get into them that much. I like some covers sometimes. This is the odd hit I like even Elvis, I wasn't too big on, you know, and I've listened to quite a bit of Elvis and it really took the Beatles, which was kind of taking all of those inspirations together. So whilst I'm being a little bit harsh on this one, I I, I wouldn't even say harsh because harsh implies like I'm doing some damage, which, um, really it it just didn't strike a a big chord with me. And I, I think it still stands as one of the great albums, but I, I think if, if we could sort of get an album that this influenced maybe that's a michael buble maybe we can sort of find something in the middle there i'm sure there's actually a lot of stuff that this would have inspired which is more modern or more upbeat or even something that you could say this inspired is potentially like blood on the tracks which is like a bob dylan album which is one of his um, breakup albums i wouldn't be surprised if this was in his mind when he did it like when he thought what Album, I'm going to do. I'm going to do a, like a semi concept album or something like that. It's going to all be the same theme, you know. Like, you, you can almost give small thanks to this kind of album. So, yeah, like, I, I definitely think this one should be held in high esteem because whenever you do something new, like, it allows other people to kind of, um, I don't know the word for it, but you can kind of update and build upon it and, um,
2: yeah, kind of pave the way. To to new yeah, exciting you, but definitely I gotta say that that uh, you know in the wee small hours in my next breakup, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna take it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna put it in in my earbuds and just go for a long walk at the beach in sunset time, and that's beautiful.
1: Would you would you rate this as one of the one of your favorite sort of breakup albums? Uh,
2: well, I have to give it a try
0: when it's uh, it's a bit more raw. <laughs> that's where I think I'm I'm missing something because. Honestly, I'm, I'm looking at this album and I've enjoyed it in the last couple of weeks. I've enjoyed how blue and lonely it makes me feel. But honestly, I kept thinking, man, I wish I could share this album with someone, you know, listen to it with someone. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the opposite of what you're supposed to do with this album, isn't it? I don't know. It is, yeah.
1: I again, with
0: so. uh, with the Joni Mitchell's Blue, I, I felt the same thing. I thought, this is an album to stay up late with someone in the middle of the night, you know, lay, lay in bed. Put it in the background and just talk about stuff. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm 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 bad at this. What do you guys think of the of the band and the, the the arrangement of the music? Because I'm not going to say that we've never heard anything like it, but we usually do listen to something with drums and bass and a couple of guitars and one mm-hmm. vocalist. Yeah.
1: Um. Yeah, I quite liked it. actually. I love
2: that kind of orchestra.
0: The the music here is is mostly really gentle and quiet. I I loved the violins and flutes and trumpets. You know, there were playing and almost like dancing around with each other in the background you know really enjoyed drowning in the music kind of trying to notice all the the little details in the background i loved the parts in which sinatra let the orchestra take over for a few bars i i I don't listen to a lot of vocal jazz or whatever this is called i always kind of thought that the whole orchestra accompanying one singer is a bit much but honestly it, it it was just amazing. I loved it. Yeah, it's amazing. I don't know how many people are in an orchestra, but having—I'm I mean, guessing it's in the tens of people. They're called tenors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but having like a fair amount of people playing all kinds of instruments at the same time and coming up with something that's really gentle and 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 touching—I loved it. It's, it's it felt really
2: really personal, like as if they were playing for me. Mm. <laughs> yeah it has a, a special effect where it's an orchestra but it's still very intimate yeah i yeah. think you did you do listen to some other uh jazz vocalists like ella fitzgerald billy Holiday.
0: yeah but like with this album I, I listen to them every once in a while i do enjoy the music but i do have to commit to to listen to it to really get to know it mm-hmm. do you guys focus on the lyrics of the album at all yeah yeah more, more so than most other albums to be honest yeah they're kind of a major component of the music here
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah you you kind of can't sort of listen to this a little bit without getting yeah it's like i
0: did
1: i did quite like a lot of them i get i think my favorite definitely was glad to be unhappy Mm. because verse two is very good fools rush in so here i am very glad to be unhappy i can't win but here i am more than glad to be unhappy unrequited loves a bore i've got it pretty bad but for someone you adore, it's a pleasure to be sad. It's yeah. Um. I don't know. It's all very tight. You know what I mean? There's no nothing really too uh, wasted.
0: I honestly, I kind of expected them to be a bit different. You know, uh, for some reason, I don't. I thought they were a bit simple than what I thought they would be. You know, for some reason, I expected them to be very poetic and picturesque. I expected something more like Leonard Cohen's style of lyrics. I don't know. Uh, I I'm not saying that they were bad at all. I I thought they were. A bit too simple, you know, a bit too generic than what I thought they were going to be. A bit more primitive than what I thought they were going to be. There were definitely a few lines that really stuck with me, but I guess I built them up in my head a bit throughout the years. Throughout the years, I wanted to listen to this album. Uh, I thought it was going to be a strong aspect
2: of the album. It was just pretty good. Yeah, I understand how you got there. You you hear Frank Sinatra and you hear like his name kind of walks... Be- be- before him, so you expect something big. But I, I gotta say that I think that's part of the charm. That they're really straightforward. Yeah. Like they're saying things that anyone can understand and anyone can can relate to. Totally agree.
1: Water is wet. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, yes. You can drink it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, yes, yes, I've experienced this. Have you heard this?
1: (laughs) (laughs) You just gotta say shit that's relatable.
0: How about how about favorite and least favorite songs? Do you guys have anything you want me to bring up? I have a few I want to bring up, but I, I don't want to go first. All right. <laughs> I,
1: I'm happy to... Well, I've kind of um, outed my favorite as Glad to yeah, be uh, Happy. But I, I did can uh, guess. <laughs> I, I, I did quite like um, Can't We Be Friends. Oh. That one was quite nice can as well. Can
0: we be friends? Um, oh, I love that song. How do we play songs now with this new bot? <laughs>
1: it's fucking impossible. <laughs> it's absolutely nuts, man. Discord must be like, every time we play a song... There must be someone who dies because they've made it extremely hard <laughs> by a song. The other one um, I'll say is also in the wee small hours of the morning, the title track is very memorable. Yeah. yeah. That one um the, that one is one you could hum on the first go. That
0: just bu- just a beautiful melody, simple lyrics, just a great song. Yeah.
2: Like there's one thing that like, it's part of the song, and it's the longing. You can really hear the longing. Yeah. It always gets me.
1: My least favorite might be I'll Be Around. I didn't quite, like, like get into that one.
2: I can see that.
0: Um, to be honest.
2: I'll yeah, it was one of the least memorable. I'll be around
0: when he's gone, or whatever he says there. Yeah. Like,
1: last night when we were young, before it was, like, decent, and then I'll Be Around kind of fades away, and Ill Wind again, like, kind of falls in the same category It's a bit forgettable and then it never entered my mind i quite like
2: hmm. there are a couple of songs here that that i know really well and i really love but i actually um i find myself really liking track number four i get along without you very well which i haven't known before i get oh, yeah. along without you very well yes like i think i know it from of course so, I something do. something with the melody really rings a bell it sounds familiar So maybe I heard it in some place before.
1: You know what it sounds, actually? It sounds like something Michael Jackson would go on to write, Hmm. you know? It it did sound like one of his sort of ballads.
2: Michael Jackson?
1: Yeah, no, it definitely did have that tinge to me.
0: There's something about it that maybe reminds me a bit of the Jackson 5 era, you know? They had a few really blue kind of ballads that might somehow remind me of this. So I I can kind Mm -hmm. of see that. A bit of a stretch, but I can see that. Mm. I don't think I have a, like an official favorite song from this album, but you know, there, there are there's a few songs I do want to mention. I one of the songs I really connected with early was Mood Indigo. Oh,
1: I damn, think sorry. I forgot to say that, but that's, yeah, it's a favorite for me as well.
0: I'm happy to hear that because usually, like last <laughs> time we did an album, you guys hated the two songs I, I brought I up. So <laughs> <laughs> This is why you wanted to go live. Exactly. That... <laughs> I was a bit nervous about that. <laughs> but Mood Indigo, I think that in terms of the lyrics, it's one of the bluer songs on the album. Like he says, he starts a song with... You Ain't Never Been Blue Until You've Had That Mood Indigo. But in terms of the feel, I think that relatively, it's one of the more livelier songs on the album. It's yeah, Again, relatively, it's one of the more catchy songs on the album. And probably because it's easier to get, I'll listen to it more often and I paid more attention to it when it came up.
1: No, that's, a, that's a good guy go. that's, that's, a, that's a good one. Um, the instruments on that one are, are really fantastic.
0: Yeah, like between each and every line, one of the instruments goes for like a, a quick musical sentence, you know, or like, yeah. there, there's a trumpet, and then there's a flute, and then it's it's really, it feels like a dance, you know, it feels like the, the, the orchestra is dancing around his vocals. Another song I really liked was Dancing on the Ceiling, which oh, yeah. I think is track 14. Mm. I think it's another catchy, fun song. It's definitely blue and sad, but it has this optimistic side to it, and it's one of the more bittersweet songs here. It was one of my earlier favorites from this album. And since I noticed it, I kept waiting for it to come up. I think it's really charming. I love the melodies in the different parts. I also really like the the lyrics. There's a line there. He goes, I love my ceiling more since it's a dancing floor just Mm -hmm. for my love. I I loved it. Another one I wanted to bring up was Can't We Be Friends, which, Peter, you've you've mentioned. Uh, Honestly, I think it's one of the stronger songs on the album. It's about Mm -hmm. a guy who knows the girl he loves is going to break up with him and it hits me every time I listen to it. I I also, I love how the intro uh, for the song and the first verse are so clearly, you know, distinct from each other. I love it like when the drums and the bass come in and like you can feel how the intro is over and the rest of the song begins, you know? And one last song I can't not mention is "Deep in a Dream." I think it's track five. Oh, really? Oh, okay. I-, I loved it. It's it's a beautiful song. Like in terms of the melody, it might be like it might feel the most familiar on a first listen because it's a bit of a generic melody, but it works. It's it's really
1: mm. beautiful stuff. The instrumentation on that one's interesting as well. It feels very James Bond almost.
0: A bit, yeah, I, I can see that. And honestly, the lyrics. I thought were amazing maybe maybe my favorite on the album like his dreaming of his love and everything is beautiful about it you know he's talking about how like I think music is coming out of the of the ceiling and like they're dancing and everything the smoke turns into stairs the smoke from his cigarettes mm. and stuff like that I don't remember but in the end he wakes up and it's just a dream you know and he snaps out of it and everything is blue again and he and, and his love is not there I, I don't know it's it's another really strong song. I think it's it's great. To be honest,
1: the first side was probably the stronger side for me. Um, like if I look through the tracks, the first, even the first five, are really quite strong. And then I don't know. I see your face before me was um, mediocre for me. Can't we be friends? Another fantastic one. And then when your lover has gone, again, sort of mediocre. Whereas the second one, there's sort of a stretch of songs there which didn't really connect with me. Like Dancing on the Ceiling didn't really connect with me. Like the last three didn't. I see um, Frank was credited as a writer on This Love of Mine and I was really hoping like, because I remember when I got past like 13 and I was on to 14 or 15, I was really kind of looking forward to This Love of Mine. And I don't know, like I guess maybe I paid less attention and just kind of skipped over them the first time. But I don't know, Dancing on the Ceiling didn't really do too much. I'll never be the same really kind of I gushed over a bit. And This Love of Mine was not as good as I thought um, it, it was probably going to be. So I don't know. Like the, the last half of the album, I kind of, I, I guess it's not it's like a super long LP, but it's, um, I, I don't like to put like a time limit on the albums because I kind of think they should just be as long as they want it to be. But I kind of feel like if you have like 10 songs there, I it kind of would have kept my attention a little bit more and I probably would have got to know them a bit more. I don't know, kind of my attention was
0: waning. A little yeah, bit. like I loved Dancing on the Ceiling, which was one of the last songs on the album, mm. but I don't know, somewhere between song 9 and the last one, 16, there was like the, the concentration of the least memorable songs for me. Yeah, And I don't know if it's because my, my my attention was waning at that part of the album, because sometimes even when I listen to those songs on shuffle and they'd come up early... They didn't really stick mm. in my mind, but yeah.
2: Okay. But did you have like a song that you didn't like on it? Not specifically. Like I think even the songs that I didn't connect with are still nice to like. It's so even if it doesn't get you, it's it's plays in the background and it's nice.
0: Yeah, even the least memorable songs gave me that blue lonely feeling. So yeah, I can't really complain. Something I I, I found interesting that that many times when I was listening to this album, I could feel how these songs inspired a lot of my favorite Tom Waits songs. And, you know, the earlier Tom Waits songs are definitely more modern than these songs. The the, the earlier Tom Waits albums, the jazzy Tom Waits albums, I can definitely see a lot of connections to 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 these songs.
1: It's kind of like the thing I was saying before. Like yeah. it is it is like he just built the canon and, the, and other people almost exploit it a little bit.
0: And obviously the to Tom Waits's second album, uh one of my favorite ones. Is this Closing Time? No, The Heart of Saturday Kinda. Night. Uh closing time was the first one. The Heart of Saturday Night, if you look at the the album cover, it's literally just based on in the We Small Hours cover. It's almost the same one. And I'm bringing this up because I felt like this experience listening to in the We Small Hours was kind of like a history lesson regarding some of my favorite albums of all time, you know? Kind of like Mm. looking at, you know, Rebel Without a Cause as kind of a historical piece that made it possible for a few of our favorite movies to to, to Mm. be made.
1: Yeah, no, I definitely agree. If there's,
0: you know, an album that you know totally inspired, like the first four. Led Zeppelin albums, we should get to know it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of the 1920s um, sort of blues and folk and stuff like that kind of inspired it, and then they kind of meshed it together with rock and roll.
2: Yeah. So we didn't do... This is our first, first jazz album, right? Yeah, dove right in there, I think. <laughs> yeah, although like you have to dive right into into it. Like I think this is... It's a fun album... It, it, well, fun is maybe not the right word, but it's it, it's a good concept album, as, as you mentioned, and it would be nice playing in in a I don't know in, in the right atmosphere. Uh, Sinatra's voice is amazing. Definitely, that's like I would recommend to to everyone who, who hasn't heard listen to give him a listen. But because this is very in a very specific concept and not very easy to take this this isn't. Uh, necessarily the 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 right album to start experiencing sinatra
1: so this one i I initially came out quite negative because in some sense like it definitely wasn't like eminently pleasurable to listen to like i didn't i didn't find myself really sort of getting into it and losing track of like um how much i liked it which, which does sometimes happen but in some sense i haven't it's not like it's been a i've unveiled anything like ungrand or sort of that has detracted from the gravitas of, uh, his music. It's, it does feel cliched, which is almost like a compliment in some sense, because yeah. <laughs> if you do something well enough uh, and polished enough, you, um, you, you sort of need other people to follow you to be a cliche, you know? So, um, it is a tribute to him that there are so many, um, artists nowadays that would consider this cliche. So, I am looking forward to listening to some more jazz. Um, definitely some more Frank Sinatra as well, probably going back um earlier, um, and also to that nineteen, I think fifty-three to sixty compilation. So yeah. um that one's definitely on the list. Um in terms of like the album art, the presentation, like the, the everything is really cohesive. I mean, as a concept album, I think it really works yeah i I definitely think um the the lyrics and the the singing the the style of singing the mode of singing is definitely something you'd hail is probably the the best sort of attribute of the album for me would I say this is like holy grail material probably not but it's definitely something i would i would give a give a go of again like I guess we didn't really talk about what where it's useful to, to play it, but I think it would definitely go well at a dinner party or something like that. So, um, yeah, I probably, this will stay on, stay on the sort of the albums, um, list on my, um, sort of on my phone and, and it'll definitely get played again. So
0: yeah. Yeah. This is a good album to keep in your library and maybe, in a few years, you know, just giving it another go and suddenly finding more into it. Mm. I don't know.
1: Wait for someone to leave me at the altar or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll play it.
0: I, I love this album. I, I had a great time with it so far, and I think I'm going to keep listening to it a bit longer. I think it has a magical feel to it. This is really a perfect album for, like, a grey morning, or... I'm saying morning because I listen to it a lot of times in my morning walk with my dog, but... This experience you know, also got me to listen to a few different Sinatra albums. I used to listen to a bunch of his more swinging album a few years ago, but like now I listen to a few more of his albums from, from the 50s, but I also added to my library a few of his later albums from the 60s and 70s as well. I felt like I needed an album like this in my library, you know? you You have to have an album for every situation. And I feel like I had blue albums but not this shade of blue, if you know what I mean. Not this kind of Mm. sad, you know? And if I'm honest, I can't say that this album shot straight into my favorite of all times list. Uh, As much as I think it's a a beautiful album and I enjoyed it, it didn't perfectly click for me. But like I said, an album that easily stirs up my feelings is an album that just deserves a lot of praise. Mm. So as we do at the end of each step of our quest, we're going to take a vote that will decide whether or not Frank Sinatra's In the We Small Hours. I love the name, In the We Small Hours. Has a place in the mm. Culture Quest Essentials Guide. We will vote with a gentlemanly tip of the hat for yay or an ominous stroke of the mustache for nay. And the vote must be unanimous in order for it to pass. Let's
2: vote. Uh, Barry, do you want to go first? Uh, yeah, um, I think Sinatra should definitely be in the Quag. I think specifically this album shouldn't. So I'm going to stroke my mustache.
1: <laughs> I... I will also stroke my
0: mustache. I'm going to dip my hat. I, I love this mm. album. Mm. Yeah. I know this isn't going to get in there if be, both of you have stroke your mustaches, but I love this album. I think it's um I I said it a few times. It's not an easy album to get into. It's not the catchiest. It's not the the best entry point to jazz at all, but I this has such a magical feel to it. I, I'm really happy that we've we've done this. I'm really happy to get to know it that that we got to know it. And I, I definitely do recommend it. I've recommended it to everyone I, got, I, I came across in the last couple of weeks. So I definitely think this album is worth uh, at least a listen or two. But, yeah, uh, this is out and totally understandable.
1: I'm going to do something that a lot of podcasters do, which I hate, which is explain (laughs) a change of mind during the podcast, which you didn't need to explain and you could have just said the thing anyway. So anyway, (laughs) I was going to give you guys a choice of two sort of movies that we could watch, two quite iconic movies, um, part of trilogies, and I was going to give you guys the hard decision of what to to watch. But I don't know. Is There's something about this album which I... It did kickstart something for me and we did just do sort of a, um, you know, a bit of a marathon with the chick flicks, the romantic comedies. So, <laughs> um, I don't know. I feel like I want to keep the jazz theme going a little bit. So I'm not going to give you a choice. Okay. Uh, I, I'm going, I'm, I'm going to, um, uh, select something, but it's not going to be Frank Sinatra. I wanted to do something that is quite different. The album cover is blue again, um, but, and I'll tell you how I discovered it. I discovered it. I have to know. <laughs> <laughs> discovered it today. <laughs> um, so my dad is actually testing out his new speaker system. Like he's got new speakers, new vinyl record player. Oh. He's been collecting vinyls for a bit. So he's, he's still waiting for one piece of um, the vinyl thing. Uh, don't ask me what it is. I don't understand it. But he's waiting for one piece. So we're testing the, his CD player with the speakers. Uh, he had two CD players, so we wanted to um, sort of test the difference between them. So he played a couple of songs. We played Boy in the Bubble by Paul Simon um, yeah. to test the difference. And we played um, played uh, Mean Mr. Mustard from Abbey Road. And then the third one, he says, you don't know it, but I'm just going to play it because it you know, wanted something really punchy. And um, so he played a song, which I didn't know the name of, but it did sound like really like really cool, like really cool. You know, when you hear something and it just sounds cool. Mm -hmm. Well, it was funky. It was, it was jazzy. It was, um, it was interesting. Um, so he's, he told me what it was and it's, it's an album by Herbie Hancock, which I've never heard of in my life. It's from his 12th studio album, um, in 1973 called Headhunters. So I'm not sure if it's ringing any bells for you. For me, it rang no bells. So this is completely in the void, but it's, uh, apparently it did hit the mainstream. So it was a commercial and artistic breakthrough for Hancock reading off Wikipedia, crossing over to funk and rock audiences, which I think would be, um, quite apt for sort of what we've, what we've done before. We haven't done funk, but we've done a bit of rock. So, so there's four songs on the album, but it does go for, I believe about 40, 40
0: minutes. Um, so the first... Yeah, yeah. It's just, I know this album, like, perfectly. I, I've listened to this album. Do you? Oh, I love this album. I I have it both on CD and on vinyl. Are you joking? And, no, I'm not at all. I have I think I bought this album, like, 10 years ago, and I listen to it all the time. It's one of my personal favorites. Hmm.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah,
0: and I don't know Maybe if you want we'll to still um, do it, because it's... It, it, what, it, we'll see what Barrio... Yeah.
1: Okay, here's the decider. If Barrio even knows who Herbie Hancock is, <laughs> we won't do
2: it. Well, the name Herbie Hancock sounds familiar, but uh, no, I'm not. I'm not really familiar with that. He's a very famous uh,
0: jazz fusion kind of uh, guy. I think he plays uh, the the organ mainly. Mm. Like, I wouldn't mind doing this album because I, I I love it. Wouldn't mind listening to it for the next couple of weeks and get to know it a bit better. You know what? It, it's it. I can take this opportunity to get to know Herbie Hancock, you know, more uh, instead of getting okay. to know the album, getting to know the the, the everything around the album, I, because I definitely would love listen listening to this album a bit.
1: All right. I think we'll. I think we'll do it because last time I think um, Barry knew it very well, or at least he knew a lot of the songs pretty yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think this is apt. I think this is good. I think it will just be interesting just for me to see if, if I can get into it. Because it is, it is pretty close to what I'm into, but it's it's still like in the jazz realm. And it's also interesting to so see what Barrio would think.
0: Yeah. It's a classic in terms of like funk and jazz and fusion uh, of the early 70s. I definitely
1: don't want this to take anything away from the album. But looking at the cover does <laughs> not look like a classic. <laughs> it looks like the opposite of a classic. <laughs> as, far as anyone ever took off the plastic to
0: be honest but But you're right it's just four songs over 40 something minutes it's uh, really interesting stuff the shortest song I'm looking at it now is six and a half minutes and the longest one um, is 15 minutes and 40 seconds and you know what I'd be surprised if uh, if you didn't recognize the first one, because it's kind of a famous song. Uh, you, you, you've played it uh, on your dad's uh, new uh, we system? We played about 30 to 40 seconds,
1: I reckon, and I didn't recognize it.
0: Ah, uh, gotcha, okay. So, uh, cool, I, this is a great album, it's it's definitely something to get into. Um, cool. It's going to be a lot of fun.
1: I'm just amazed, I picked something pretty much out of the void, and <laughs> you knew it very well, that's 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 great. enough
0: for you. <laughs> Man, I was sitting on the keyboard, like, waiting to Google, waiting for it to finish the story, and... Finding out what we're going to listen to next, and I'm like, Oh, Headhunter, I love it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> kind okay. of a, not, to, not to say that I was disappointed, but uh, yeah. a bit anticlimactic surprise at the okay. end there.
1: <laughs> well, hopefully, it's new for the listeners as well.
0: Yeah, sure. yeah, it's gonna be a fun experience, uh, no doubt about it. So, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Mario, for staying true to our goal, and thank you, the listeners at home, for helping us along the latest stage of our quest. We hope that you join us again next episode and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. See ya. The Culture Quest podcast is brought to you by no one in particular. The best way to support us and help us grow is to tell your friends and family about us and to direct them at episodes that they might find interesting. We might start a Patreon page at some point, that way we'll be able to do some cool stuff with people who decide to actively support us, such as you'll be able to join our Discord channel and discuss the albums, movies, books we're doing before we record each episode. You'll be able to suggest and devote vote on the subjects that we do. We can maybe do listening parties with the albums we've covered and who knows what else. Uh, if you think you might be interested in something like that or you want to contact us about anything else, drop us a line. You can find all the ways to contact us on our website culturequestpodcast.com
1: Thanks for listening to today's episode. I just wanted to bring to everyone's attention all those people that are currently stuck without their phone and are forced to continue listening to this unless they pause it and then have to contemplate, you know, the state of their life and other things. So, you'll probably just continue listening. I just wanted to give a bit of a shout out to a, um, a website, actually. It's called givewell.org. So, that's give, G-I-V-E, well, W E double L dot org. So, it's it's a dot org. So, it's, it's legit. And um, basically, they're the authority on who is worth giving money to in terms of charity. So, obviously, we'll give money to friends and family if they fall on hard times. But if you are thinking about giving large sums of money to um, charities, it's definitely best to do your research. Because A lot of people just give away money and want to feel good, but it's also good to think of it as an investment and how you can do the most good. So, it's not asking you to give away more money, but it's asking you to give the money away in a responsible way. And um, basically, they've just authorised eight charities. So, out of all the, I want to say hundreds of thousands of charities, might be a bit lower, but they've authorised only eight. And I think it's really good to just Scan through the list and um, see if you can consider donating to these charities. So, um, I think that would be good if we can all sort of band together during these tough times. At the moment, it's COVID, but you know, that will change and we're all going to need to support everyone. So, this is probably one of the best evidence based ways to do that. So, yeah, so definitely hop on to givewell.org if you're considering. And hopefully, those charities are like tax deductible or something in your country, which would be in your best interest. So, anyway, this is not formal advice but it's just good place to go thank you